Our Father, thank you so much for the opportunities we have to gather like this freely and Lord, to, to know that as we gather, we're doing it in, in your name, a worthy, worthy God, holy, 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 and a God who is so loving and kind that you would actually sacrifice yourself, Lord Jesus, to die on a cross and pay for our sins, a message that the evil one, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of people to hear. But Father, we as individuals, as we share with our family or our neighbors, our co-workers, a stranger on the street, or, or collectively as a body of Christ as we do the Follow the Star event, we have um, opportunities probably almost every day or certainly every week to proclaim uh, your greatness. And I pray, Father, that as we open up your word now, you would continue to stretch our understanding and our thinking and our, our heart for you, that you would transform us, Father, by your spirit, and that you would be our teacher, that you would lead us into truth this morning. We desperately need to hear from you. We desperately need to be transformed by you. And so we present ourselves to you, Father, and look forward to what you'll do now as we open up your word and we continue our time of worship. In Christ's name, amen. In, in a book entitled, Naturally Selected, The Evolutionary Science of Leadership, the authors in that book share in a portion of that book a chapter that they call Seven Steps to Becoming a Dictator. Seven Steps to Becoming a Dictator kind of a, I don't necessarily recommend the book, but uh, it's kind of a fascinating uh, uh, seven steps. Here they are real quickly. Number one, expand your power base through nepotism and corruption. Want to be a dictator? There you go. Step two, instigate a monopoly on the use of force to curb public protest. Number three, curry favor by providing public goods efficiently and generously. If you want to be a dictator, number four, get rid of your political enemies. It's probably a good idea. Number five, create and defeat, create and then defeat a common enemy. Number six, if you want to be a dictator, accumulate power by manipulating the hearts and minds of your citizens. And number seven, the seventh step to becoming a dictator, create an ideology to justify your exalted position. Um, some ideas that the authors, as they have looked at um, famous dictators throughout the ages, and, and there have been many of them, have compiled this list. Dictators have abounded, but I don't think there has ever been what you would call a benevolent dictator. It's, it's a role my wife would like to play. She's often said that. If I could just be a world dictator, benevolent dictator, just for one day, boy, things would be different. But I don't think the world has ever seen a benevolent dictator. But the Bible tells us that one day, there's a day coming, one day, when there will be a world ruler, a king of kings, 
a ruler of all rules, the likes of which the world has never seen before, a benevolent dictator, a benevolent ruler. We see these things, uh, these little um, prophetic statements throughout the Scriptures. Like in Daniel chapter 2, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these other kingdoms. But it itself, it itself will endure forever. Or, again, in the book of Daniel, then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey him. A day's coming. Prophet Zechariah said this, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one in His name, the only one. We're studying the book of Isaiah here, and throughout the book of Isaiah, we, we see these glimpses of someone who is to come. So, for instance, in, in um, Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on His shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, where was the throne of David, by the way? It's Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. A day is coming when a mighty leader, a mighty king will rule this world. But in the passage we're going to look at this morning in Isaiah 42, we learn something maybe shocking about this coming leader. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. And verse 1 begins with this kind of wake-up call, behold my servant. Look, this is God talking, look, my servant. Now, in contrast to what he had just said the verse before, in uh, 41 verse 29, behold, all of them are false, their works are worthless, their molten images are wind and emptiness. He's talking about false gods. But then in chapter 42 verse 1, he says, look, let me introduce you to my servant. Let's keep reading. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I have put my spirit, or whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4 says, He will not be disheartened or crushed until He has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, that was a word that means the, the Gentile nations will wait expectantly for His law. The servant 
servant of God. Behold my servant, says God. The one that I delight in. The one that I've put my spirit upon that I will uphold. Look at him. And he describes this servant in some wonderful, interesting phrases. But he also gives us what this servant will do. Three times in those four verses, this word justice is used. Did you notice that? Verse, last part of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Or verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, until he has established justice on the earth. It's a very important concept, obviously, as it's repeated three times. Now, it's, it's a word that means beyond just um, law and order, as we think of that legal concept of, of, of justice. It's a word that means more, much more than just law and order. It's a word that conveys this idea of, of everything that is right and everything that is good. It's like when God created the world and he said, behold, everything was very good. Everything was right. Everything was working properly. Everything was in order. It's kind of the idea of the, the Hebrew idea of shalom, of peace, of well-being. It's a very important concept. It's, it's getting things to operate under God's truth in order and everything that is right. This coming servant of the Lord is going to establish justice on the earth. And notice again, it's the servant is the one that God delights in. Verse 1. His spirit will be upon him. So this will be a God-empowered servant, leader, ruler. But verse 2 also says that he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. There's no um, public relations advanced man that will show up. There's no entourage that will go before him the day or two before he enters the city and, and prepare all the events there's no thousands and thousands of, of those who will be called together to, to make his grand entrance to see him when the band plays. He'll not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. There's a, there's a quietness, there's a gentleness, there's a humility about this servant of God. And verse 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And it's talking about those that are the, the most downtrodden, the, the oppressed, the weakest, the, the, the flimsy little reed that's already bent. He will not snap it off. He will not break it. It's that, that candle wick that's just about to go out. Life is almost spent, but he will not extinguish it. He's gentle, he's kind, he's compassionate, he's caring. This servant of God who's coming. And it says that in verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established this justice in the earth. 
and the coastlands will, will wait expectantly for his law. So he will establish that which is right and good, and he will establish law and order. He will bring about his law upon this earth. It's similar to what Isaiah had um, said earlier. If you go back to chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, remember this passage? Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, that a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. See the connection there? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah, Yahweh. Verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and he'll decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Verse 5, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the, the leopard will lie down with the young goat. Even all in the natural realm will be totally transformed. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child, verse 8, will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then it will come about in that day, verse 10, that the nations will resort to this root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This is a, a time unprecedented in world history, a time that is yet to come. Now, God addresses this servant that he's just described in these first four verses. He now addresses this servant, and he gives him words of encouragement. So back to verse 5 of chapter 42, thus says the Lord, or Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So, wow, now, that's a pretty big introduction for God. Why not just say, and then the Lord said. Because what we just read in verses 1 through 4 is so astounding. Again, the world has never known this. It has never seen it. Can you tell me one leader of the world in all of humankind, of time, of humanity, who fulfills this kind of a description? Is it even possible that we will see in this world such a kind, benevolent, strong, firm, law and order, director, leader, ruler, king of the world. And so God punctuates it strongly by saying, thus says God the Lord. I'm the one who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. In other words, I, the Lord God, who can do anything I want to do because I have created all things, I can bring this to pass. 
And he directs his thoughts, his comments to this coming servant in verse 6. I am Jehovah. I'm the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and, and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. By the way, he's addressing this to an individual. This is um, a singular, masculine, second-person pronoun. If you were here last week in chapter 41, we saw that the nation of Israel was labeled the servant of the Lord in chapter 41. And indeed, God has the nation of Israel raised up, as we saw last week, to serve Him, and that will also happen in an age yet to come. But He's talking here to an individual, this coming one who's been called in righteousness, who Jehovah God will hold by His hand, watch over, and appoint Him as a covenant to the people. He's talking, I think, and there's um, this is a difficult phrase to understand, but I think the, the idea, the best of my ability to understand this is that he is the one who's going to be the fulfillment of the covenant for the people. The people are the Jewish people. And a light to the Gentile world. The covenant of Abraham where God said, in you all the families of the world are going to be blessed. I'm raising you up, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. And a great nation is going to come from you. And through your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. That's the covenant God made with Abraham. Then God made a covenant with David. Someone coming from you, David, your family, your, your lineage will sit on your throne and reign forever. A covenant he made with David. And then he made a covenant with the people in Jeremiah 31. A new covenant it's called where God says, I, I covenant that I'm going to put a, a new spirit, a new heart. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to make you my people, the new covenant. And now God is saying to the servant of his, this coming world ruler, you're going to be the fulfillment of that covenant to my people. And you're also going to be a light to the Gentiles. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. And I, or verse 7, to open blind eyes, to bring up prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I'm going to, and there, there are huge overtones of spiritual life in these phrases. I'm going to open those spiritually blind eyes. I'm going to bring out the, the spiritual prisoners who've lived in dungeons of darkness. Because verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I give my glory to uh, no one, nor my praise to graven images. For verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass, and now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Something is yet to come. Something is yet to come. God has a plan, and central to that plan is this coming servant of the Lord. In this passage about this coming servant of the Lord, Isaiah is adding truth that he has already shared in part in previous passages. For instance, back in chapter 7, remember this? A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she'll call his name 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then he said in chapter 9, verse 6, we already looked at this, a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. And we looked at this in chapter 11, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of God of the Lord will rest on him of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And now God says he's going to be my servant, my specially chosen one in whom I delight. My spirit will rest upon him. He will not come with fanfare or loudness, noise to proclaim his coming. And a bruised reed he will not snap. And those whose life is about to flicker out he will not extinguish. My servant is coming in gentleness and quietness, but he will establish his rule and his law, and all the nations will come under it. God says, because I am the Lord, and I give my glory to no one. I'm the creator of all. This is yet to come. Of course, the big question, I'm sure, in Isaiah's day is, good night, who is this? And when is he coming? I mean, if anybody needed this type of a, of a servant leader, it was those people back in, in Isaiah's day, 2,800 years ago. Not sure when these exact words were written. Could have been in the, as they were waiting for the Assyrian army under Sennacherib to come and, and sack Jerusalem. Or maybe it was the aftermath after Jerusalem was spared, but the, the nation of Judea, of, of Judah, was, was in, in disarray because of the Assyrian attacks. And they're floundering and they're wondering wait a minute, when, when can this take place? And who is this one that is coming? Well, I want to take us to the first gospel of the New Testament. Isaiah, I guess you could say, is the first gospel of the Old Testament. We call it the fifth gospel. But let's go to the book of Matthew this morning for just a brief moment. The book of Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew wrote his gospel to Jewish believers. His audience were people steeped in Judaism. And so oftentimes in Matthew, you'll see a lot more Old Testament Scripture quoted because he's writing to people where this would have been much more familiar. Matthew chapter 12, and let's start with verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry, and they began to pick the heads of grain and eat. No big deal, right? You can see it happening. They're just kind of strolling along, and Peter grabs a, a stalk of grain and pulls it up and pops it in his mouth, and James does the same, and John, they're just kind of having a Sabbath stroll. Except, according to the Pharisaical law, they just violated the laws of harvest. And so verse 2, the Pharisees saw this and they said, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, according to their man-made laws. 
And Jesus said to them in verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, and he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread that was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or verse 5, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath? And yet they're innocent. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, and then he quotes from Hosea, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What is Jesus suggesting here? He's saying, remember the story of David, God's anointed, who's with his men, and they actually violate the law, what they did, and yet they are not condemned for it. And here is Jesus, also the Lord's anointed with his men, and they're just breaking a man-made rule. And you're going to condemn me? How can you condemn the Son of Man who is the Lord of the Sabbath? Wow. How do you think that went over with the religious leaders of the day? But do you notice the verse that Jesus quoted? Mark's gospel account, Luke's gospel account uh, don't include this, but he quotes from this Hosea passage that says, if you had only known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. This is the Lord God talking. And it gives you an understanding, a little bit of insight into the heart of Jesus. Where is your compassion? Jesus is suggesting to the religious leaders of the day. Where's your heart? It certainly doesn't mesh with the heart of God, he says. Now, in the next little paragraph, he proves his compassion and the meaningfulness of this whole passage. Departing from there, verse 9, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And so they questioned Jesus and they said, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And of course, this is a trap. If they can show that he is a law violator, why, they can turn the people against him. They would have a right to, to do away with him, to stone him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they said that so that they might accuse him. And verse 11, he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you won't take hold of it and lift it out? Verse 12, How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. Notice Jesus didn't lift a finger. He just told the man, stretch out your hand. And that act of faith as that man stretched out his hand, he's instantly brought to wholeness. He's healed. Of course, the Pharisees, the Pharisees' response in verse 14, they went out and conspired against him as how they might destroy him. How ironic. These champions of the Sabbath law 
now in their heart want to commit murder. Now, it's right then that Matthew continues. He writes in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. No fanfare, no marching bands, no PR advance people. And this, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And here it comes, the passage we just read in Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And a battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. When Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago, Matthew, as he writes this, is saying he was walking in fulfillment of Isaiah 42. You want to know who the servant of the Lord is? Matthew says to his audience, look no farther than Jesus of Nazareth. The servant of the Lord who came onto this earth with the love of God, with the compassionate spirit, gentle, humble. And when he saw a bruised, broken reed, he didn't snap it off. And when he saw a person's life that was about to be extinguished from the pain and the trials and the tribulations of, of living in this wretched world, he didn't snuff it out. Jesus came with compassion, with sincerity, with grace and mercy. And Matthew says, He is the servant of the Lord. A bruised reed he would not break, and a smoldering wick he would not put out. But now wait a minute. It's been 2,000 years. Where's the justice on this earth? I don't see any, do you? I don't see it in our daily newspapers, in our sickening 24-7 cable news. I don't see it. Where's the justice? Who's out there righting the wrongs, standing for truth, bringing shalom to this world? No one. So was Isaiah half right? Where's the justice? And of course we know. Jesus came the first time as that suffering Son of Man. He came to die on the cross and pay for our sins. He came in love and grace for that bruised reed, for that smoldering wick of humanity. People who were incapable in and of themselves to earn a spot in heaven, to live a life of, of, of joy, 
of gladness in spite of the circumstances. Jesus came and he died on that cross and he paid for our sins. He was the servant of the Lord who took our place and died that we might live. But he's coming again. And when he comes a second time, when he comes a second time, he'll come with truth and righteousness and power and he will reign with compassion, with gentleness, with humility, but with power. And that's why, go back to Isaiah chapter 42, that's why Isaiah immediately now writes these words starting in verse 10. Isaiah 42 verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands, those who dwell on them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the settlements where Akedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. For the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war, and He will utter a shout. Yes, He will raise a war cry, and He will prevail against His enemies. And He will reign as the servant of Jehovah God in compassion, gentleness, a broken reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he won't snuff out, and the knowledge of the Lord will fill this earth like the, like the waters cover the sea. The king will come and reign. This very same servant of the Lord is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the good news is, for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we don't have to wait to that day to sing a new song or to shout for joy. We don't have to wait for that day to come. Because the Bible tells us that when we trust Him as our personal Savior, this very servant of the Lord takes up residence in our life and transforms us. Now, okay, maybe we don't look very transformed today, but by faith, according to the Scriptures, the Bible says, we're, if you know Jesus, we're new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. All has become new. If there's anybody on the face of the earth that should sing a new song, should shout with joy, it's followers of Jesus Christ. And I admit, I oftentimes, well, not oftentimes, but there are times that I look like I've been baptized in lemon juice. I realize that where you get under the circumstances of life. And, you know, why, why are we living under the circumstances of life? And we go through life and, and oh my, this and the world is a mess, and, and then our life falls apart. And they're legitimate issues. They're troubles and trials. Jesus said in this world, we're going to have tribulation. We live in a body that is still subject to decay and dying. We can struggle with the... the, the financial stresses there might be, just of, of living as God's people in a fallen world. He understands that. He knows that we can walk in here this morning and some of us might be bruised reeds. Some of us might be just about to, our, our wick might just to be a, snuffed out. He knows that. And He loves us with compassion and grace. 
and He will never break us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never snuff us out. So we of all people should sing a new song, should shout with joy, because of all the people on the face of the earth, we have the King within us. He has made us alive. He has made us new. And in a couple of weeks as we start the Advent season, this is what we're going to celebrate. He's come into our darkened world. He's broken into our prison, and He set us free. He set us free. He told us this. John chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And, and Paul added, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's, he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Jesus told us in John 8, if therefore the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. And Paul adds to that, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be entangled again into this yoke of slavery, into this this, this pain and agony of living in a wretched world. Let's live as people of the light. Let's live in freedom. He's the same yesterday, today. He's the same forever. Isaiah said, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And folks, you can count on that. And he wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him every day. Do you believe this about our Lord? Man, I look forward to the day when it will all be realized and justice will rule this world. But we can celebrate today and we can sing a new song and we can rejoice because the servant of the Lord resides within us. Sometimes we just need to tell our face that <laughs> and live a life of victory, of hope, of the reality, He's come. He's ours. We're victors in Christ. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't yet know You as their victor, as their champion, as, their, as the servant of the Lord, I pray that You would open their, the eyes of their heart to understand that you love them, you died for their sins, you paid the penalty, and you rose again victorious, and you're offering the free gift of eternal life just by believing that truth, that if they would transfer their trust off of themselves and onto you and you alone, they can enter into this forever relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, for those of us who have trusted you, maybe for many years, may we, Father, keep living in light of it. Oh, Father, may we sing a new song. For our Lord Jesus has busted into our prison of hopelessness. He's, he's unshackled us from the fear of death. He reigns supreme in our hearts. And Father, may we just recognize it and shout for joy, and that we can tell others and bring them along as well. Thank you, Father. You have done this out of your great love and compassion. We worship you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.